This is the New Song Church podcast. You're listening to a service from our church in Oklahoma City. Wherever you're at today, we hope this helps you to better know God and to practice the way of Jesus. Now here's the message. What are you doing this morning? You doing good? Y'all awake? Did y'all feel the presence of God in that worship today? Come on, so good. Praise God. Look at your neighbors say, welcome to church. Look to your other neighbors, say, buckle up. (laughs) Buckle up. We're going to go straight into the word of God today. I got no time to dilly-dally this morning. We got to go get to work. So if you don't know me, my name is Pastor Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here. I've been here going on six years now. I love this church so much. I love our pastors. I love what God is doing here. I'm very honored and grateful to be here. I hope you feel the same way. But we are continuing a series that we started two weeks ago called What Lies Beneath. Look to your neighbor and say, what lies beneath? This is the question we're asking and we're, we're, we're addressing um, the 10% of our emotional life that we tend to spend the most of our attention to. We're talking about our emotional health in this series and how it's tied to our spiritual health. And if you remember the analogy of an iceberg peeking up above the surface of the water, all you see is a 10% of that iceberg, but in the reality, there's 90% of that iceberg underneath the surface that you do not see, right? You remember that? And so in this series, what we're doing is we are confronting the 90% below the surface. See, we tend to spend all of our time and attention on the 10% that people see on social media, what they see in church. Sometimes we only give God 10% of who we actually are. So in this series, we're confronting the 90% of our, our heart below the surface, and we're asking the question, what lies beneath? Now, just a warning, this is a series that by its very nature, is going to be uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable series for all of us. And if it hasn't been uncomfortable for you yet, then welcome to this week, because it's gonna get a little uncomfortable. But what I wanna encourage you with is just like Pastor Tondra, I said, man, it's worth it. Doing the work of confronting the 90% below the surface, though it's uncomfortable, it's worth it because this is how we journey into our maturity in Christ. It'll all be worth it when we look more like Christ after we've done the work of addressing the 90% below the surface. I'm telling you, it's worth it. So we've already talked about in week one, Pastor Sarah preached an incredible foundational message on how our spiritual life is directly tied to our emotional health. You can't separate the two. You can't just read your Bible and pray and not address the things that are actually going on in your heart. They go hand in hand. And then last week, Pastor Josh preached an incredible message on the false self. Did you guys enjoy that word? So good. Talked about the false self and are you living from that false self? And today we are going to be addressing the past. Talking about the past, specifically with our families. And so what I love about a message like this is this applies to every single person in the house. Every single person, because I don't know about you, but you probably came from a family. (laughs) Probably got a mom and a dad, or if you don't, you came from a mom and a dad. We all come from family. And what we're gonna address today is the fact that family is a vital, powerful role in the person you are today, but God wants to redeem our families, amen? And so if you're taking notes today, the title of my message is Family of Origin, 
embracing God's perfect plan and our imperfect families. This is what we wanna do today, embrace God's perfect plan and our imperfect families. So to kick us off, I wanna look at uh, Genesis chapter 45. If you got your Bible, you can turn there with me. Your Being Transformed journal. Who's ready uh, for the new Being Transformed journals? They start tomorrow. It's gonna be awesome. But Genesis 45, this is the story of Joseph. You're probably familiar with Joseph, coat of many colors. Um, this dude was amazing, but he had a story. This guy had a testimony. And at Genesis 45, what we're about to read is the biggest plot twist in almost all of the Bible. Because up until this point of Joseph's life, Joseph's entire life has been a life of rejection. It's been a life of betrayal from his family. It's been a life of unfair circumstances in him. And he's been dealt a hand from the world and from his family that is just a really bad hand of cards to deal with. But what we see in Joseph's life is Joseph submitted the cards that he was handed to God. And God is beautifully orchestrating his life into something so amazing. In fact, at this point in the story, Joseph, we know, Joseph is one of the top dogs in Egypt. He's one of the top dogs in authority. And not only that, but God has actually used Joseph to prepare Egypt, which is not even a godly nation. He's prepared Egypt for the famine that they're in because he's had these amazing dreams and these visions and the Holy Spirit has helped Joseph to discern what these visions and these dreams mean. And so Egypt at this point in the story is prepared for the famine that they find themselves in. They've got the food and the resources they need. And so in Genesis 45, we see Joseph's family the same family that betrayed him and cut him off years and years and years ago, they're running to, to Egypt to ask for some help. They need food and resources because it's all dwindling around them. So they travel to Egypt and what they don't know is the very person that they're asking help from is the brother that they sinned against. And they have no idea. So they're asking help from Joseph. He's concealing his identity. And actually there's like two chapters where Joseph is like a total meanie and he's like, making them travel back and forth and playing mind tricks with them. But then in, in Genesis 45, Joseph reveals his identity. And it's the plot twist of the century. And what we see in Joseph's response to his family, in spite of the fact that they betrayed him, they lied about his death, they cut him off and they rejected him. What we see in Joseph's response is an understanding of trials. We, we see a perspective of faith in Joseph. And we see a heart posture of forgiveness in Joseph. I want to show this to you. Look at this. Genesis 45, verses 4 through 8. It says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near to him, and he said, I am your brother. Can you imagine this? I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now don't be in distress or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve your life. For the famine has been in this land for two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me here to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive. And for many survivors, this is my favorite verse, verse eight. Look at this. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Amen. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Would you pray with me? Bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, I thank you so much for your sweet presence 
in this room today. And God, I recognize that every person in this room comes from a broken family. Some more broken than others, but broken nonetheless. Every single one of us in here have been handed down something. But God, we recognize that as believers, we're called to lay things down and to pick up a new family line. So God, I pray today, Holy Spirit, I pray that generational bondage, generational sin, generational curses, whatever that is in our family, I pray that they would fall to the floor today. Would you wake us up, Holy Spirit, to what's been handed to us so we can surrender it to the foot of the cross and pick up a better word for our families today in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. amen. Okay, I think biblically speaking, there are two different types of people in the world. You're one of these two people. You're either a Martha or you're a Mary. And if you're not familiar with these two ladies in Luke chapter 10, uh, Martha invites Jesus over to her house. He, she hosts Jesus. And Martha is known as like the neat freak in this story. She's like anxiously preparing food. She's cleaning the house, making sure everything looks perfect because the son of God is in her house and she's freaking out. So she's making sure everything is perfect. And then Martha notices her sister, Mary. And what is Mary doing in this story? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She could care less about what the house looks like. She could care less about food being on the table. Mary is content right where she's at. So what I want you to see is we've got Marys in this world and they don't care what the house looks like. And then you've got Marthas in the world and these are the sane people. These are the normal, correct people. Um, which is kind of ironic because Martha is the wrong person in this story. But, um, and if you haven't guessed, I'll let you know what kind of person I am in just a second. But uh, I grew up in an amazing family. I grew up in a really healthy home. My parents um, are still married to this day. Um, they got me in, yeah, amen, praise God. Um, they got me and my siblings into church at an early age. I love my parents, but I think all of us could agree that as we grow up as children, at one point in our life, we see things in our parents and we don't like what we see. Have you ever been there before? You know what's funny is my parents surprised me and they were here last service and I was like, y'all came on a good week. <laughs> but we all, we all have done this before. We grow up and sometimes we, we discover this sooner than others, depending on the family that we grew up in. But all of us have that moment as a child when we see something in our parents and we think to ourselves, that's not gonna be me. Have you ever had that thought before? Maybe you had a parent that spoke something over to you and it, over you and it was harsh. And so you think in your head, you're like, when I have kids one day, I'll never talk to my kids like that. Or maybe for you, maybe for you, you grew up in a family and they just had some weird rules, like some quirky rules and habits. And then so you thought, man, when I grow up and get my own place, things are going to be different. Things are going to be different. I'm going to have a TV in my bedroom. There's going to be no curfew. I'm gonna eat ice cream before dinner because it's gonna be my place. We have these thoughts where we think things are gonna be different when I grow up. And I say all this to say my mom growing up was a Martha. My mother's a Martha through and through. Some might call her a neat freak. And I'm pretty sure I called my mom a neat freak growing up, but I've grown up to honor my mom. So I wouldn't call her a neat freak anymore. I call her detail oriented. 
She's very detail-oriented. And she grew up in a military home. My grandfather, her dad, Al Castellana, he was a colonel in the Marines. Um, so she grew up in a regimented house. And yeah, that's right. And, and so she grew up in a regimented house. And so I grew up in a house that was just immaculate all the time. Things were always clean. Dishes were never in the sink, always in the dishwasher. Uh, the laundry, you always separated the whites from the darks. You never washed towels with clothes. Like my mom went the whole nine yards at our house. And if you were to come over to our house, let's just say hypothetically, you and I, we're on the couch, we're having a little chat. You've got a glass of water or iced tea or whatever. And you're, let's say you're three quarters of the way through with your drink. And you, you put it down on the table and you, you go back to chatting with me. And then you get thirsty. So you go back to grab your drink, you would discover that it has disappeared. <laughs> the drink is gone because my mom has snatched it up, thrown it in the dishwasher already. And not only that, but she's wiped the table clean of all the, all the drops that you might've put on there and the coaster has been put in its rightful place. This was the kind of home that I grew up in. And growing up, you know what I thought when I saw the neat freak qualities of my mom? It's gonna be different. When I get out of the house, things are gonna be different. And so I get out of the house, I go to college and I'm in an apartment complex in Grapevine, Texas with four of some of my best friends. And I had the most incredible discovery. And it's that I am my mother. <laughs> I am a Martha. I found myself with these dudes who were all Marys and just could not care a lick about what the apartment looked like. And so I was the crazy roommate that would do their dishes because I didn't want to be annoying and say, hey, do your dishes and then see them do it the wrong way. So I would just do it for them. <laughs> and I, I realized like, I am my mother. And, and then not only that, I married my wife who is a Mary through and through. She could care less about what the house looks like or the laundry or the dishes. In fact, we've, we've just recently nicknamed my wife the beverage goblin because if you come to our house, you'll notice that there is a mug and a glass of water in every single room. And that's been my wife. The, the beverage goblin has come through. So I say all of this to say this. John Mark Comer says this, we vow I will never be like my father or mother or grandfather or that weird aunt on my mother's side. But then to our dismay, we see the exact same dysfunctional patterns resurface in our own life. Some of us just can't escape our last name. <laughs> now, why am I sharing all this with you today? Am I trying to throw my wife and my mother under the bus in the same message? No. <laughs> because I actually love the Martha qualities in my wife and I love the Mary qualities in it. Sorry, the Martha qualities in my mom and the Mary qualities in my wife. I love those things about them. The point that I'm trying to make is that when I was in college, I discovered that I was not as much of an individual as I had thought. And this is the lie that I think we grow up believing. We think we are our own person. And yes, in a sense you are. But what I wanna show you today is that you are more of your family than you think. And for, for what we gotta understand is part of the process of us growing emotionally and spiritually is recognizing and acknowledging you're an individual, yes, but you are a product of family. You are a product of family and you were made for a family. Peter Scazzaro says this, Discipleship then 
is the putting off of the sinful patterns and habits of our families of origin and being transformed to live as members of Christ's family. So my goal today in this message is difficult, honestly, because family is not simple. Family is not a simple topic. It's actually really messy and it's really diverse. We all grow up in completely different families every single one of us. We all have a different family history. Some of you in this room, you grew up and you never had your parents in the picture. Some of you grew up in the church. Others of us didn't grow up in the church. Some of us grew up with parents who were divorced. Some of us grew up with parents who were not divorced. We all have different forms of family of origin and they're all completely different. And there's ways to do family different in a biblical healthy way. There's not just one right way to do family. So my goal for today is not to just give you some like super clear cut three point sermon about how if you'll do these three steps, you'll have a perfect family. That's not my goal today. My goal is to simply address three realities about our families. I wanna look at three realities about the families that we come from, the power of our families and the power of God in spite of our families. Amen, church? So the first thing we've got to address if we're talking about family is this. If you're taking notes, write this down. We've got to address the lie of self. The lie of self. And I think we can all agree we live in a pretty unique time in history. Would you, would you agree with me? We, we live in a unique time in history. In one sense, I know that you know, Ecclesiastes says nothing new is under the sun. And so there are things that we're experiencing that are not new, that generations before us have dealt with. But I also understand that, man, the way that technology is advancing so quickly, ideas are spreading. We live in a culture that is changing faster than ever before. And one of the things that we're seeing in the mindset of our culture today is this. We're seeing the rise of this thing called individualism. What is individualism? It's the habit or principle of being independent or self-reliant. And we live in the most individualistic time in history, without a doubt. So in order to address family, we've got to first address the fact that we live in a culture that tells us you don't need family. You don't need people to tell you who you are or what you do. You need to go chase your dreams. You need to go be your own person follow your dreams, be your truest self. Have you ever heard any of these phrases before? This is what our culture tells us. It's so pervasive in our culture to tell us this message of you be your own person. Don't need, don't have anybody tell you who you are or what you're, what you're about. And there's two lies that I think have started to rise in our culture today that are results of this rise of individualism. The first one is this, I don't need a family to be happy. This is a lie that we're seeing rise today. And on a less extreme end of the, of the uh, spectrum, this can look like me when I was a college kid. And I'm seeing things in my parents that I don't necessarily like. And I think I'm an individual. So I think, man, I don't need them to be happy. If I have my own place, if I have a space where I can be my own person, then I'll be my truest self, only to discover that my truest self was a lot like my parents, right? On a more extreme end of the, of the spectrum, what this rise of individualism is doing is it's causing people to believe this lie that my actions don't affect my family. 
There's no consequences to my action. My actions aren't really gonna affect generations that come after me, but that is a lie. And we're seeing this today. My actions don't affect my family. In fact, I recently saw this uh, in the real world. Is it okay if we address something real today, church? I I just saw this um, recently on YouTube. I like YouTube. I watch a lot of YouTube. And there's this guy on YouTube. He's got the most famous channel called Mr. Beast. And if you have kids, you're probably familiar with this channel. Um, This guy is an amazing dude. He does some really creative stuff. He's one of the most generous dudes on YouTube. But one of his friends that's been on this channel for years now has just recently come out as transgender. This person is transitioning. And, you know, today, that's just not the craziest thing to hear, right? This is kind of the world we live in. That's not really a surprise to hear something like that. But what stood out to me about this person in particular is that this person is married and has a son. And many people, when this news came out, obviously were were a little bit upset and so started responding to this person on social media and and warning them and saying things like, hey, I don't know if this is a good idea. I think this is going to affect your family. And what broke my heart in this scenario was this person's response to all of the lashback. Their response was basically like, this isn't going to affect my parenting and this isn't going to affect my son. He's going to be fine. And... I'm not bringing this person up to throw shade or or shame on this person at all. Actually, our response as as Christians should not be to hear news like this and to to do the typical like, see, this world is crazy. These people are going to hell in a handbasket. That is not our response as Christians. When we see stuff like this, it shouldn't cause us to post something like hateful. It should cause us to pray for these people because it breaks God's heart. So I don't bring this up to shame this person. I bring this up because this is a result of the lie of individualism. You chase your truest self at the expense of the family. Be your truest self because your family can deal with it. But the reality is, biblically speaking, our actions do have an effect on our family. We are not as individual as we think we are. We're not as as individual as we think we are. And that's because, if you're taking notes, write this down. We were created in the image of a family. We were created in the image of a family. If you're looking for your next Christian book to read, I've got a recommendation for you. Write this down. It's called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. It's an incredible book on, you guessed it, the Trinity. It's all about how God is a three-in-one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing book. And what, what the author is doing in this book is he's comparing the fact that God being a trinity makes him different than any other God of any religion. And there's one point in this book where he's comparing God, our God, Yahweh, to Allah, the God of Islam. So is it okay if we get a little deep this morning? I want to read this quote to you because it blew my mind. Check this out. There's a fascinating tension at just this point in Islam. Traditionally, Allah is said to have 99 names, titles, which describe him as being the eternal God. One of them is the loving. But how could, God, how could Allah be loving in eternity? Before he created, there was nothing else in existence that he could love. And the title doesn't refer to a self-centered love, but a love for others. Listen to this. The only other option is that Allah eternally loves his creation. 
But that in itself raises an enormous problem. If Allah needs his creation to be who he is in himself loving, then Allah is dependent on his own creation. And one of the cardinal faith cardinal beliefs of Islam is that Allah is dependent on nothing. Did you catch that? Okay, I wanna, I wanna break this down for you. What, what, what the author is saying is that Allah, the God of Islam, claims to be eternal, outside of time, doesn't need us, is dependent, independent of people, but it also claims that Allah is loving. So the question is, before things were created, who was Allah loving? Nobody. And this is what makes the God of, of the Bible, the God who is a trinity, three in one, completely different than any other God in any other religion. Because yes, our God is creator. Yes, our God is a ruler. But before God is any of those things, you know what he is? A father. He's a family. And God didn't need a creation to love anybody. God was already loving before creation existed. Are you seeing this? This is incredible. And Jesus actually shows us this in John 17. He kind of gives us a glimpse into what was happening before everything existed. Look at this. John 17 says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Look at this because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What is Jesus showing us? Before anything was created, there was a family. Before anything was created, outside of time, eternally, there was a family. There was a father loving the son, loving the spirit in perfect unity, in perfect community. And we don't make God a father, you know that, right? Like we loving God doesn't make him a father. He was always a father. He's always eternally been a father. The son has eternally been a son. He wasn't a created being. The spirit has eternally been the spirit. And they have all for eternity been loving each other in perfect unity as a family. Are you seeing this? Michael Reeves says the most foundational thing about God is not some abstract quality, but the fact that he is a father. Since God is before all things a father and not primarily a creator or a ruler, all of his ways are beautifully fatherly. It's not that God does being fatherly as a day job, only to kick back on the evenings and as plain old God. No, it's not that God has a blob of fatherly icing on top. He is father all the way down. Thus, all that he does is fatherly. That is who he is is. So I hope what I'm showing you today is starting to give you a little bit of a glimpse into the power of family. Because before anything was established, family existed. And then in the creation story in Genesis, what do we see? We see that early on, Adam was created differently than anything else in creation because Adam was created in the image of what? A family, of God, a triune being. And so God creates us as a family, for a family. Not only that, we were created to depend on our family because in the same way that the father can't be the father unless he has a son and the son can't be the son unless he's being led by the father to the cross and the spirit cannot live in us in human hearts without the father and the son doing their part, 
The Father depends on the Son. The Son depends on the Father. The Spirit depends on both of them. In the same way, you and I were created in their image to depend on family. We depend on family. I don't care how much you think you're self-made. It's in your DNA. You were designed in community and for community. The second, or the third thing is this. We were created to multiply our family. And in, in the creation story, we know that God created Adam and Eve and God put his characteristics inside of Adam and Eve. They were created in his image. So we know that Adam and Eve reflect God's character, but their goal was not just to reflect God's character because God looks at them and gives them a command. Do you remember what that command is? He says, go, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And so in this moment, we're seeing the role that God designed family to play in creation. Families aren't just designed to reflect God's character. We're designed to take what we've been given and to multiply it, to pass it on. And you know, this wasn't God just saying, hey, go make babies. This is bigger than just go make babies. God is saying, take what I've put inside of you and pass it down. And so what I wanna show you is that this is where the whole thing about family gets interesting. This is right here where it gets messy because in a perfect world, this is genius of God because he creates families to take what they've been given and multiply it. So in a perfect world, what do families do? They take the good qualities of God and they multiply them from generation to generation. But I think we all know the fact is we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a fallen world. And because of the fall, families don't just pass down the good qualities that have been placed in them. We also pass down the bad. Are you following me? So we got to address the role and power of our families today. Because families are much more powerful than you think. Families cannot help but take what they've been given and pass it down. And we tend to think about family in kind of the American Western worldview. We think of it like the nuclear family. So we just think of like our mommies and our daddies and our brothers and our sisters and like a white picket fence. But the Bible, when it's talking about family, it's talking about your whole family, your aunties, your crazy uncles, your cousins, your granddads, going back at least four generations. Here's what we got to address today, church. There are things inside of you that are not just from your parents, but they're from a generation, two, three, four generations back, playing into your life today. Now, you might be here today and you're like, I don't know about that, Pastor Jackson. That sounds a little wonky, a little weird. I don't know if I believe in that. Well, let me prove it to you. I want to look at some scripture. And then I want to look at some characters in scripture and prove this to you. In Exodus 34, Moses is on the tip of Mount Sinai. He's talking with God and he asks God, hey, will you show me your glory? And so God agrees, I'm going to pass over you. And this is the first time in scripture that God tells somebody his name. You know, God has a name, right? It's not God, it's Yahweh. And Yahweh is not just a label that God gives to Moses. It's actually a characteristic of who he is. It's God saying, hey, this is my name and this is what I'm like. Look at what he says to him. He says in Exodus 34, verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Amen, y'all, right? Those are some good qualities of God. He is slow to anger. He's compassionate. But we're not done yet, though. God's not done self-defining. Look at what he says. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, I didn't say that's who God was like. God said that's what he's like. God is telling us, I'm, I'm compassionate. I'm slow to anger. I forgive sin and transgression, but I'm also just. And God, what we see in this is he allows the consequences of sin to take place in this creation. You know that, right? He's good. That doesn't take his goodness away, but God allows generations to pass on sin until somebody says no more. He allows that to happen. And you can call, you can call it whatever you want, but these things exist. This thing of, some of us have known these as generational curses, generational sin or habits or trauma. You can call it whatever it is. You can label it whatever it is. As long as we all agree, it exists. This stuff exists. It gets passed down. And I want to show this to you with three generations in the Old Testament. I want to show you today how we see patterns of generational sin get passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Can we run through this real quick? It'll all be up on the screen behind me. If you want to just snap a picture of it, because it'll be a lot to write down or look in the notes on the app, you can follow along with me. But check this out. In every generation, we see a pattern of lying. Abraham lied twice about Sarah. Isaac and Rebekah's marriage was characterized by lies. Jacob lied to almost everyone. His name means deceiver. Ten of Jacob's children lied about Joseph's death, faking a funeral and keeping a family secret for more than 10 years. In every generation, we see favoritism by at least one parent. Abraham favored Ishmael. Isaac favored Esau, Jacob favored Joseph, and then Benjamin. In every generation, we see brothers being cut off in relationship from one another. Isaac and Ishmael were cut off from one another. Jacob fled from his brother Esau and was completely cut off for years. Joseph was cut off from his 10 brothers. Are you seeing this? This is crazy, y'all. These guys are family, and it is passing down. I got one more for you. We see poor intimacy in the marriage of every single generation. Abraham had a child out of wedlock with Hagar. Isaac had a terrible relationship with Rebekah. Jacob had two wives and two concubines. And I bet, I bet today, if we were to do that same experiment with your family and my family, we would find patterns. We would find patterns of sin and bondage and dysfunction being brought down from generation to generation to generation. But here's something encouraging. We all come from imperfect families. That doesn't sound encouraging, but that should give you a little bit of grace today. No family is perfect. No family is perfect. We are all products of imperfect family history. And patterns of our family history are more powerful than you think. Some of us have experienced this on more extreme levels. 
Like maybe for you, you can see the pattern of sin in your family history and it's very obvious. Like maybe for you in every generation, there's been alcoholism that's been passed down. Or maybe for, for you, there's been divorce in every single marriage of your family line. Maybe for you, it's obvious that there's been abuse or racism or offense or people being cut off from one another in every single generation. So maybe you're here today and it's easy for you to see this in your family. You're like, yeah, Pastor Jackson, that is obvious in my family. But there's some of us in here today and we have come from quote unquote good families. And maybe everything was provided for you and everything was, was there for you. You grew up in a good home, you grew up in church. I'm here to tell you today, there are still patterns in your family. Maybe for you, it's harder to see, it's a little more subtle, but your father never gave you affection. Everything was taken care of, but he never told you he loved you. I bet if you were to find out, his father never told him he loved him and his father never told him he loved him and it goes back generations. All of these different kind of examples, what I wanna show you is that they play into the 90% of that iceberg beneath the surface of our lives. And whether we like it or not, we all grew up in a family that's passing down something. It's passing down something and they play a role in how you're wired today. So what am I saying today? Am I telling you today that you are trapped in whatever your family's giving you? No. Maybe you're here today and you're like, well, thanks a lot, Pastor Jackson, for reminding me how jacked up my family is. <laughs> I guess I'm just gonna become the alcoholic my dad was, or I guess I'm just gonna get divorced like my parents did. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. The fact that Jesus was born into an imperfect family proves to us that we as believers can break generational curses today. Amen, church? You know, Jesus came from an imperfect family. He didn't have sin in his heart, but in his family line, there was adultery in prostitution, but Jesus said, I'm changing the narrative of my family. Jesus shows us that there's a new model as believers for how we can walk out our family line. Discipleship is the very act of us putting down sinful habits in our family and picking up new ones in Christ. But in order to do that, we can't just like say like Christianese things we have to do something about this. The final thing we have to do is we have to address reality. Every single one of us has to address the reality of our families. Peter Scazzaro says this, emotionally healthy spirituality is about reality, not denial or illusion. It's about embracing God's choice to birth us into, into a particular family, in a particular place, and at a particular moment in history. As I was thinking about this this week, I was reminded of that iceberg analogy. And I was thinking about the iceberg as representing our family sin, this big, deep thing that's floating in, in space. And it's our family bondage and our sin and our, our, our imperfect family history that is passed down to us. It's like this iceberg and it's peaking itself, itself up out of the surface. And all of us in our life, we're on a ship and we are traveling through the ocean. And at one point or another, all of us in our lifetime will encounter that 10% of our family history that's peaking itself up out of the surface. And in that moment, when we start to see a little bit of unhealth in our families, there are three different responses that we can make 
when we see that iceberg show up in our life. The first response we can do is we can deny the power of that iceberg. We can deny it. And a lot of us are doing this today with our families. We see the 10% of our family history. We see the 10% of some unhealthy communication or sinful patterns in our family history. We see the 10% and we think to ourselves, meh, it's not that big of a deal. We downplay, we deny it. We look at things that happened to us in our past and we play off like it didn't actually affect us. Maybe for you, you're here today and something happened to you as a child and you have been denying the power of that thing that happened to you. Can I tell you, it's okay to address the fact and acknowledge the reality that it hurts you. In fact, doing that actually allows you to be your real self before God instead of bringing God a pretend version of yourself. So there's some of you here today that you've been denying your family's role in your life. Maybe you grew up in an unhealthy home where your mother left you as a toddler and you've been telling yourself your whole life, meh, I'm fine. It's not affecting me that much. Maybe your parents got divorced and you've been telling yourself your whole life, yeah, 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 but I was young and it like didn't really affect me that much. Can we address reality today? Maybe you've been denying and downplaying that your whole life. That's a response that we can make to the iceberg. But I'm telling you, if you're, if you're floating through the ocean and you're judging the course of your life based off the 10% that you see and you're not changing direction, you're gonna run into that iceberg. This is how things get passed down from generation to generation. We downplay their power and then we end up doing the same things we saw our parents and our grandparents and their parents do. We can deny the power of our families. But the second thing we can do on the opposite end of the spectrum is we can demonize our families. We can demonize our families. We can come up to this iceberg and we can look at that iceberg and think that that iceberg is literally out to kill us. That iceberg is the devil put that there and it's trying to kill me and I just don't even know what to do. And none of us would go out into the natural world and look at an iceberg and call that thing inherently evil, right? Because it's not evil, it just exists. It's there. And yeah, it's powerful and it can do some damage, but God didn't put that iceberg there so that the Titanic would hit it and people would die. God didn't put that there. And sometimes we demonize people, our parents, our uncles, our cousins, something that happened to us, we demonize them when the reality is they're a lot more like you than you think. They're imperfect, sinful, fallen people who, yeah, made mistakes. And I'm not saying that whatever happened wasn't wrong because it was if that happened to you. What I am saying that you demonizing them is only keeping you in your tracks because you're coming up across this iceberg and all you're doing is just acknowledging how evil and bad and terrible it is, but you're not changing directions. You're not doing anything about that. And what we can do when we come in front of this, this iceberg of our family history is we can either deny its power, we can demonize our family and harbor unforgiveness and bitterness in our hearts, or what we can do, what I think Joseph does, and we can defer. We can defer. What does defer mean? It means to submit humbly to a person. And thankfully, over the years, I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that we have built up technology that has learned from past mistakes. 
we've recognized that icebergs do damage to boats. And we don't want Titanics to happen anymore, right? Amen? I'm thankful that we have developed something called radar. And so now we have radar in ships to where when we see an iceberg come up in front of us, what does a radar do? Well, a radar simply addresses and acknowledges reality. Listen to me. Radars don't deny that icebergs exist. Like when a radar shows an iceberg, it's not like, ah, it's not that bad. You can keep going. And a radar doesn't make it bigger than what it actually is. What does a radar do? It just tells you how it is. Radars acknowledge reality. And I'm thankful that the captain of a ship, when they come in contact with an iceberg, what do they do? I'm thankful that they defer to a radar. They, they humbly submit to, I see 10% but I recognize this might not be everything that's really there. So I need to defer to something that gives me a deeper, wider, better perspective of what's going on. And we see this in Joseph's response. Joseph doesn't deny the power of his family. He doesn't demonize his brothers. He defers. He defers to God's radar. Look at this. We see this in his response. He says, come near to me, please. And they came near to him and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, look at this, whom you sold into Egypt. I love that response. Joseph doesn't say, hey, come, come here, bro. come here, brothers. I'm Joseph. And we can just forget that that thing happened. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Look, I'm okay. What does he say? He addresses reality. No, you sold me into slavery, but don't be angry. Don't be sad. I've forgiven you because look, God sent me before you to preserve life. Church, we need to be doing what Joseph did. Joseph deferred, humbly submitted his life despite the fact that he lived a hard life. He was given a terrible deck of cards, but he submitted them, deferred them to the Holy Spirit and said, what are you saying about this? And for some of us here today, you have been denying the power of your family your entire life. You've been downplaying what's happened in your life for so long. You've been pretending like it didn't have an effect on your life. And God is inviting you today to acknowledge reality, to acknowledge that it hurts you. That happened to you. And you need to stop pretending like it didn't because when you do, you're never bringing your full self to God. Some of you have been denying your whole life. Some of you here today, you've been demonizing your family for what happened. You've been harboring bitterness and unforgiveness and you think that you're the way you are fully because of your parents and they're terrible people. And I'm telling you today, the Lord is inviting you to release them, to forgive them, to, to have a deeper and higher and better understanding of them and their imperfect flaws, just like you. John Mark Comer says the hope of to the third and the fourth is that we don't have to repeat the mistakes of our parents and our grandparents and our great grandparents. We can get off the hamster wheel, reclaim our humanity. We don't have to stay stuck. Amen, church. If you're living under the shadow of a generational sin, you live in the terror that you'll grow up to be like your father or your mother. Listen, what was true for your parents and your family line doesn't have to be true for you here. You can change the trajectory of your family here and now with Jesus. You can bring your sin to Jesus and repent 
and watch the handcuffs of porn and lying or gossip or greed or envy or bitterness or whatever it is, fall from your wrists and clang to the floor. Amen, yes. Church, generational patterns of sin and dysfunction, you are not trapped in them because this is what discipleship is all about. It's about acknowledging reality. It's not about pretending things don't exist and calling that faith. Can I say that again? Discipleship is not about pretending that things didn't happen and calling it faith. It's about addressing reality and doing something about it. It's about deferring to God's radar and saying, Jesus, this is what's been handed to me but I submit it to the cross because I know your blood speaks a better word over my family. What is that word? What is that word for my family? Because some of us, we've been handed down scripts that say, man, this is just how you are. This is just how our family is, but discipleship is saying, no, I'm not gonna pass that down. I'm not gonna pass that generational sin down to my kids. I'm saying no, and I'm starting a new family line in Christ but it takes us acknowledging reality. We're gonna do that right now. I wanna invite you to bow your heads and to close your eyes as we respond to this message. And this is where we have to put the rubber to the road because we just sang in worship about coming to the threshing floor to be sifted. And that sounds good. That's an easy thing to sing But man, being sifted by God is a lot harder to walk out. It's easy to say, but it takes takes courage. And I believe that there is courage rising up. The Holy Spirit's here and he wants to embolden you to, to look at the reality of your family's sin, to address it today. And there's two questions I want us to ask the Holy Spirit today as we respond. And what I love about these questions, what I love about this message is that there is not a single person in this room that this message does not apply to. This applies to all of us. Every person needs to ask these two questions. So ask the Holy Spirit this. Holy Spirit, what has been handed down to me through my family line that does not please you. I want you to actually ask the Holy Spirit that question right now. Holy Spirit, what is being handed down to me through my family line that does not please you, God? What needs to break in me? What generational curse needs to end with me? Maybe for you, it's an obvious one and it's substance abuse. There's been substance abuse in every single generation of your family or divorce or adultery. Maybe it's a little more subtle and it's like lashing out in anger or impatience or judgment and offense. Ask the Holy Spirit, what is in my family line that does not please you, God? And the second question I want us to ask today is this, 
what am I currently passing on that does not please you? What am I currently living in that I would not be happy to pass on to further generations? Holy Spirit, search my heart today. What in me needs to go? What am I living in that needs to end today? Because I don't want to pass down dysfunction from generation to generation. I want it to stop with me. I want the new family line of Christ to start with me. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for speaking to hearts today. Thank you for all of the family lines that are represented in this room. And God, we, we have such an incredible opportunity as believers, as people submitted to your will, because we can be the change in our family line. We don't have to see dysfunction and sin passed down any longer. We can lay it at the foot of the cross and pick up a new family line where we pass on the goodness of God from generation to generation. And God, we say today, we want that. We wanna pass down the God qualities, the God flavors from generation to generation. So reveal to us today, church, reveal to us today, Holy Spirit, what needs to end? What needs to be broken off today? What chains need to be broken off today? We're gonna, re we're gonna respond to this message and I wanna encourage you today, if that's you and there was something that was revealed to your heart about what's been handed to you or what you are passing down, man, this is the day of salvation. Today is the day to say no more. We're starting a new story in this family and we're gonna respond to this message and it's gonna take some courage, but I wanna encourage you to not let this moment pass you by. Would you stand with me? And I wanna invite the prayer team to make their way down to the altar. And if you're here today and you know that there is a family line, a family story, that needs to change with you. And you're saying, yes, I'm changing the family narrative of my story. Man, I wanna encourage you, come down and lay that down at the foot of the cross. Maybe you're here today and you've been denying your entire life or you've been demonizing and you need to forgive somebody in your family, release them today. We're gonna invite you to come down for prayer for those specific things. But if you have a prayer need of any kind and it matters to you, it matters to God. And we're a church of prayer. We don't, pray, we don't take prayers like, like, like it's just some little thing. It changes things. And so if you need to respond to this message, make your way down. There's no shame. There's no fear. You coming down for prayer is something that we celebrate here at New Song Church. So respond to this message. Don't let it fall to the wayside. But if you don't need prayer, would you lift your hands with me? Father, we praise you that Jesus, your blood speaks a better word over our families. And we are not trapped in generational sin. We're not trapped in generational bondage. We can change the story when we partner with you and acknowledge reality. And I pray that you would help every single person in this room to do that, to look at that iceberg of their family dead in the eyes and to say no more, no more. Jesus, speak a better word over my family. I lay this down and I pick up the new family in Christ. Thanks again for listening. For more information on our church or for more resources to help you grow in your faith, 
Go to newsongpeople.com or download our app by searching for New Song Church OKC in the App Store.